0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Come Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who has memories of hanging out with Chuck Norris, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's
1: Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we'll continue our coverage of the spring TV season as we review of Supernatural and my dad-my review of Orphan Black, along with our sitcom section including Community and Big Bang Theory. But as always, we will also bring you all the TV and entertainment news of the week in the News with Nico section.
0: Yeah, so we're going to get that News with Nico section started with some exciting news about Star Wars, their spin-off held, some TV shows that are returning that were long since ended, and a spin-off to a beloved Marvel show that's currently airing on ABC. So take it away with all that great stuff, Nico.
1: Star Wars Rogue One details revealed. At last week's Star Wars celebration, we finally got more details on one of the planned standalone films in the Star Wars universe. First off, the movies will officially be referred to as anthology films. Kennedy said the idea of non-episodic Star Wars films was actually suggested by George Lucas himself. He was quote, really interested in exploring all the stories that might exist within the universe. The new title logo reflects the anthology feel of the film, and you can see that in the chapter artwork. The detail of the film's plot was finally revealed as well, after months of speculation from fans and press. Rogue One will revolve around a band of resistance fighters united for a daring mission to steal the death star plans as revealed on the official star wars live blog in the event felicity jones will play a rebel soldier the crowd at the panel got a small teaser of footage including shots of a tie fighter and the death star itself which i saw online and it was awesome it had a monologue voiceover from alec guinness from from a new hope and it gave me goosebumps gareth edwards stressed the film is going to going for a realistic feel and the events in rogue one will take place after revenge of the sith but before a new hope he said the film is going to for the feel of war films such as Zero Dark Thirty and Saving Private Ryan. Greg Frazier will be the director of photography for the feature and he previously worked as DP on films like Foxcatcher and Zero Dark Thirty. Production arc was shown of rebel soldiers running from ships in the rain and is available if you follow the link in the ACC feed. This film sounds amazing, looks amazing, and could be the film of my year in 2016. Needless to say, I'm excited about this. Adriana Palicki and Nick Blood eyed to top line Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. spin-off. As ABC and Marvel are prepping a spin-off from sophomore drama Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I have learned that Season 2 cast additions to the Mothership series, Adriana Palicki and Nick Blood, are finalizing deals to headline the offshoot. Palicki and Blood's characters, Lance Hunter and Barbara Bobby Morse, aka Mockingbird, have quickly become fan favorites since joining Phil Colson's team early this season. Lance is a quick-witted mercenary sharpshooter, while Bobby worked undercover in Hydra. Giving the spin-off a Mr. and Mrs. Smith vibe, Lance and Bobby are former husband and wife who have let sparks fly in a push and pull relationship on agents of Shield. Marvel, ABC, and Reps for Palicki and Blood declined comment, however. The spin-off is supposed to be set up by events from this season of SHIELD. The setup of the spin-off would allow it to air concurrently with SHIELD. The question is whether, following the decision to put Once Upon a Time and Once Upon a Time in Wonderland on the schedule at the same time, something ABC Brass later officially regretted as likely damaging the spin off's chances, whether the network would do that again with SHIELD. Using the spin off as a bridge between the fall and spring portions of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s season, which was the original plan. For the two once series and what was with what they did earlier this year with the Agent Carter series would make much more sense. The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. spinoff is one of two new Marvel series for ABC in the works, along with a drama written by John Ridley that, according to the latest online speculation, may be centered around Miss Marvel. It may come down to one or the other, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. ScarJo would do Black Widow movie if Joss Whedon directs. Marvel's Avengers Age of Ultron is poised to become one of the biggest blockbusters of all time, and its all-star casts are becoming pop culture icons. However, while Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, and Captain America have all had standalone films, the fan-favorite Black Widow has been relegated mainly to the role of backup or sidekick. ScarJo was asked if she'd ever consider doing a standalone film, and speaking at the Hollywood premiere of Avengers Age of Ultron on Monday, she opened up about the possibility of starring in a standalone Marvel movie. Avengers director Joss Whedon had recently said Black Widow should star in her own film, Johansson said laughing, I'll do it if he directs it. For his part, Whedon has announced that he's stepping away from the Avengers franchise and that Age of Ultron is going to be his last film associated with the series. While a Black Widow movie, especially one directed by Whedon, might not come around anytime soon, the beloved character is still going to appear on screen. Quote, I'll be back for Captain America 3 and we start shooting that in like a month or something, Johansson assured, so there will be more Widow. You can check out the video of the interview from the red carpet in the link in the ACC feed. Con Man finds a home at Vimeo. To hear at least one veteran of science fiction talent the oddest moments at fan conventions are not the ones generated by those who paid to be there, even if they are dressed as stormtroopers or vampire slayers. No, the bulk of absurdities happen behind the scenes. That's the premise of Con Man, a new web series from Alan Tudyk and Nathan Fillon, two alumni of Jess Whedon's still-beloved, but short-lived series Firefly. Con Man will star Tudyk as an actor stuck in the so-called sci-fi ghetto, meaning the bulk of his character roles entails signing autographs and making appearances at fan conventions. Con Man aims to explore how that affects one's psyche, with humor. Conman, which raised more than 3.1 million in a crowdfunded campaign on Indiegogo, is shooting this spring and summer, and hopes are that the series will be unveiled in the fall and winter. The show will premiere on streaming video site Vimeo. As is the case with all great short-lived genre shows, a series of books, as well as graphic novel and a game, are destined to follow this series. For a very charming interview with Alan Tudyk, follow the link in the ACC for a great read. Mitch Pileggi officially back as Skinner in X-Files. For a show that's been off the air for 13 years, it's really making a comeback in the old zeitgeist, and that jumped up to gargantuan levels with the announcement at the end of March that the show would be returning for a six-episode miniseries on Fox. But we only knew the creator Chris Carter and stars David Duchovny and Julian Anderson would be returning for sure. No word on anyone else, officially. More recently, some of the show's best writers started signing on, but there was a big, important cast member who was rumored and even mentioned by David Duchovny along with The Smoking Man, but hadn't been confirmed until now. Via the actor's own Twitter account, quote, very happy to announce that Walter Skinner will once again be getting all grumpy and bitchy with his two wayward kids. Very happy. That's right, Mitch Pileggi, who Portrayed antagonist, assistant director Walter Skinner for 81 of the show's 201 episodes will be returning to the fold for an unspecified number of episodes, but hopefully all of them. Skinner debuted at the end of the show's first season and quickly became an integral member of the cast, especially during the larger conspiracy episodes, but eventually for a lot of the Monster of the Week stuff too. Skinner was always a fan favorite, and knowing that he'll be back gets me even more excited about this revival. It was great when he popped up in the sadly not the best movie, The Truth Is Out There, in 2008, but more would have been nice, and now will get more, and it will be nice. John Stewart announces last show air date. Save the date. John Stewart announced on Monday's Daily Show that he will depart the show as host on Thursday, August 6th. Stewart, who will be succeeded by comedian Trevor Noah, whose launch date remains to be announced, announced in February that he was stepping down after 16 years. I love John Stewart on the Daily Show, and he will be missed. Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk premiered this week. Neil deGrasse Tyson's science comedy talk show Star Talk is moving to its new home on the National Geographic Channel, taking late night talk show conversations from Kardashians to Star Trek's Kardashians. Like the podcast before it, Star Talk the TV show is a three strand braid between science, humor, and pop culture, Tyson explained in a series pre screening. And that braid is an important recipe for how we are delivering science to the public. As if Star Talk Goes Primetime wasn't exciting enough, the theme of the first episode was Star Trek, centered around an interview with navigator, science communicator, an avid Twitterer, George Takai. Tyson might not be the iconic series' biggest fan, but guest speakers, comedian Leanne Lord and American Museum of Has- Natural History astrophysicist Charles Liu are self-proclaimed Trekkies and we're super excited to discuss Star Trek on the premiere episode. The hour-long weekly series is scheduled to air new episodes every Monday for the next 10 weeks, so check your local listings, with reruns airing on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern. Upcoming interview guests include director Christopher Nolan on April 27th and YouTube sensation astronaut Chris Hatfield on June 1st. I very much enjoyed the first episode and will be tuning in each Monday for more Star Talk. Full House officially snags 13-episode order from Netflix. Confirming TV Line's scoop dated back on April 2nd, Netflix has placed a 13-episode order for Fuller House, a multi Cam continuation of ABC Smash Full House. Candace Cameron Burr, Jody Sweetin, and Andrea Barber are set to star, reprising their roles as DJ Tanner Fuller, Stephanie Tanner, and Kimmy Gibbler, while John Stamos will serve as producer and guest star as Uncle Jesse. In the continuation due to debut in 2016, veterinarian DJ is pregnant and recently widowed, living in San Francisco her younger sister, aspiring musician Stephanie, and lifelong best friend, fellow single mom, Kimmy, along with Kimmy's feisty teenage daughter, Ramona, all move in to help take care of DJ's two boys, a rebellious 12-year-old JD and neurotic 7-year-old Max, and her soon-to-be arriving baby. This series is essentially a flip-flop of the original series with all boys and an all-female adult cast. Discussions with Full House alumni Bob Saget, Mary-Kate, and Ashley Olsen, Dave Coulier, and Lori Loughlin regarding guest appearance in Fuller House are ongoing. You can watch Stamos' appearance on Kimmel in the link in the ACC feed, where he discusses the project. Ewan McGregor casts as Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. The cast of Disney's live action retelling of their animated classic Beauty and the Beast continues to get impeccably cast, and their latest edition is no less impeccable than the rest. Although I not so subtly suggested when Sir Ian McClellan was cast as Cogsworth that his good buddy Patrick Stewart should be cast as Lumiere, Disney has instead cast another beloved sci fi icon in the part and hired former Jedi master Ewan McGregor to play the charming French butler who gets turned into a candlestick by a witch's curse. McGregor, of course, is no stranger to movie musicals, having started in on Rouge back in 2001, as well as many theatrical productions of plays like Guys and Dolls early in his career. McGregor is one of my favorite actors out there, and I'm excited to see him sing Be Our Guest, which many fans believe to be Beauty and the Beast's standout number. And that's no small thing, as this musical is filled with standout songs. So this is a great showy part for McGregor to remind everyone of his musical theater chops. Beauty and the Beast is scheduled to be released on March 17, 2017. Man, that's going to be a long wait galaxy quest tv series in the works it looks like once again the red thingy will move towards the green thingy a tv series based on the 1999 tim allen sigourney weaver comedy galaxy quest is currently in development original co-writer robert gordon is in negotiations with paramount television to work on the project which is currently being shopped around as our original director dean parasot and executive producers mark johnson and melissa bernstein the tv version would keep the same premise as the movie it has been cast of a beloved 1970 star trek-esque tv series inadvertently get reunited for a real space mission to help an alien race oh please let this happen that film was a stroke of comedic genius and a personal favorite of mine. I can't wait to see this series if it actually happens. J.K. Simmons to star in Star's Thriller about fringy parallel dimensions. Recently minted Oscar winner and closer along, J.K. Simmons will headline Counterpart, a supernatural tinged thriller for Star. As reported by Deadline, Simmons will star as Howard Silk, a longtime United Nations agency wonk who discovers the organization he works for is guarding a secret passageway to a parallel dimension, and on the other side of which is his own counterpart who is dubbed Howard Prime. The project was created by Justin Marks from Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li and the upcoming Jungle Book movie while The Imitation Games Morton Tildum is set to direct the first episode no word yet on when the series will premiere Daredevil renewed for season 2 but with new showrunner. The Man Without Fear is coming back for a second season Netflix and Marvel announced that Marvel's Daredevil has been renewed for season 2 which will debut in 2016 however in a notable change up the series will have a new showrunner Stephen S. DeKnight who was showrunner for the first season will not be returning with Doug Petrie and Marco Ramirez now running Daredevil together as co-showrunners both wrote for the first season of Daredevil with Ramirez previously writing for Sons of Anarchy and Petrie, another alum of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, along with Knight and Daredevil executive producer Drew Goddard. The big question mark is why Denight is not returning, especially given how well received Daredevil has been. It's possible he could be moving on to another project completely. He recently tweeted he still hopes to make his long-in-development sci-fi project Incursion with stars, where he made Spartacus, but it's also hard to speculate if he could still be staying within the Marvel family. Most notably, many wonder if he'll run the Defenders series, which will team up Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist, and which still lacks a showrunner. The the same goes for the Iron Fist series as well. Hopefully he'll still be involved in the series even if not as the showrunner. Also, prior to Daredevil's renewal announcement, it wasn't clear if Netflix would be bringing back the Marvel shows for new seasons before all the planned series had debuted through the Defenders series. In an update since originally reporting this, Denight has tweeted that he specifically has a conflict due to a movie he's working on and that will stop him from returning to Daredevil. Still, I hope he is involved in with the entire Defenders series as those series go forward. It would be a huge loss to lose someone like Steven tonight. And that's the news with Nico for this week.
0: Yes, and with that we're going to dive into an episode of Castle that I was absolutely terrified to watch because it was going to bring back that accursed Amnesia plotline which we at the beginning of the season thought was could have possibly kill this show. But uh, I think they turned it around a bit with this episode. So we'll talk about that and how Castle was able to turn around a plotline that might have been the worst out of the entire series with our discussion on the episode Sleeper. <laughs> A
1: recurring dream helps Castle and Beckett discern clues about his two-month disappearance, but their search has deadly consequences.
0: It's no secret that we hated the plot plotline that started out this season because it just didn't feel like Castle. Because it made all the characters we love act really weird. But this episode, which readdressed the amnesia mystery, tried really hard to do it in a way that felt familiar to us longtime watchers of the show by bringing back the psychiatrist that helped Beckett in season four, played by Michael Dorn, who was Worf on Star Trek: The Next Generation. And the clues he had in this dream to include a vision of Chuck Norris, Gore not exactly Chuck Norris, pan out to give us the uh, humor and wild theories we expect from the show. Nico, do you think this was a successful return to the the Amnesia plotline? Because it utilized the mystery formula that we've seen work on the show, like with the Vertigo-themed episode from earlier this season of Castle, having to prove that he's not crying wolf with one of his crazy ideas.
1: Yeah, Dan, as I sort of predicted a few weeks ago when we last talked about the return of this Amnesia plotline, they worked hard to make this better and also wrap it up all quickly in this single episode. I think they did an excellent job of doing both of those things, making this episode so much better than the season premiere and second episode, as this actually seemed like a Castle episode to me. It started small, blew up into a massive conspiracy that could envelop the entire series, and then was resolved for the most part in this episode, as they wrapped up as much of the mystery as they could in a single episode. Yeah, there's maybe some stuff that might still lead to stuff down the line, but for the most part, they wrapped up and answered most of our questions and most of Castle's questions too. Just about everything about this episode was better than what we've gotten before. But I was frustrated with Espo going back on the not trusting Castle bandwagon when he and everyone else seemed to be back to trusting and supporting Castle for most of this season. It just seemed like a departure that made no sense to me. Was that something that kind of caught you off guard as well? Yeah, it caught a lot of people off guard watching the episode.
0: Okay. Friends I talked to about this episode, my family also felt that way as well. They're just like, what the heck's going on?
1: Yeah, it kind of seemed like maybe this episode was meant to be back before everything was like almost like right after the previous ones or, you know, a couple episodes later. And they pushed it to fix it, and this was one of the things they left in that maybe didn't make so much sense. Yeah, and I also think
0: they were trying to create some conflict. You're probably right. Did not need to be there? I agree. Uh, and again, you know, I think it's the last we're going to see of bad scenes like that with Espinosa. You know, now that we know that what everything happened, and what's going on, and I'm sure Castle somewhat shared that with them or Beckett did, then I think we won't have this this doubting stuff going on anymore. I think this was an episode that said, you know, we need to address this because it's a problem. Uh-huh. We can't leave it open ended because that's just kind of sloppy. And so they went back and they said, okay, you know, how can we fix this episode? I bet there were a couple things where it was just like, yeah, we're just going to have to let this right out and, and, and just take our punches. Because I think for the most part, they took the right punches with this episode. Because you and I both know it could have been a lot worse. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, if the, if the Aspo scene was the only thing that was a little bit of a problem, then I'm okay with that.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. It,
0: it just was something, because
1: everything else yeah. was so much better, it was just one thing that I was like, man, this really didn't work or this
0: really seemed yeah.
1: off. So I had to mention it because it was so much better than what we'd had
0: before. The important thing to take away with this, from this, was this is a Castle episode. Mm-hmm. It felt like a Castle episode. That's, that's what you need to do. Because when this Amnesia storyline started out, they do like casual. Like that premiere episode, you and I both said, what show are we watching here? Exactly. So, we were, we, you know, we were much better. Again, when I was watching the first half of this episode, I did, I, I started having a little bit of a problem with the amount of manpower that went into solving a personal matter for Castle. Guys, I mean, that deadpan character Dory probably has other cases to work on, but I've got to give the writers credit for realizing this issue by having Captain Gates call back at out using too many resources. That was one scene where Captain Gates completely made sense. Cause then allowing the investigation to continue by the guy in Kevin's dream who he thought was Chuck Norris showing up dead, turning the case into a homicide that the gang at the precinct had to investigate. Because did you think back at UC police resources for a personal matter was gonna be a problem with this episode until it was addressed midway through the episode? No, I actually thought it was handled perfectly in this episode
1: because if they were legitimate clues to follow, it makes sense that they would investigate his disappearance with every possible resource because he is a member of the team and the husband of a police detective as long as they were legit clues and leads like Captain Gates asked, they should be investigated like this because of his close ties to the police and the implied security concerns involved. So I think they handled this perfectly in the story, and I think the way that Beckett handled it at first, where she was skeptical but still devoted some resources, it was a big case for them. It was a big thing. She had to take all of her vacation for the next couple years off because of, you know, searching for him. So it was a big thing. It was a big story. It was, you know, first time they'd had any clues or reasons to start opening up the investigation again. So I don't think it was out of line or even something that was unexpected, you know. And I think Gates had a, a right to say, "Hey, are we sure that these are legitimate leads?" And Beckett was honest with her, "No, but I think there's stuff things that we need to track down." And so she gave her a sort of a short leash, which is exactly what you would expect. So I think they handled it very well. They kind of threw that Gates conversation in there to address any concerns we might have been having like right. like you said. So I think they, they they handled it perfectly.
0: Plus, the other thing, I mean, I guess one of the people that's in your office every day has this period of time where they don't know what happened. Exactly. Can you think so? It, it, that, that is a security risk. You were right. I didn't think of it that way. That, that's a very good point. Because you could, because you don't know where he was. I mean, there's a possibility that this was someone that was after the police. Yeah. Got to this situation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but that, that's a very good call. Again, it was a concern I had at the beginning, but I, I, I wanted to mention it to say that they did wrap it up very well. Oh, for sure. Um, and that's the thing. They did a very good job with some, some tying up loose ends. Yeah. I mean this is the greatest episode of Castle ever Again, we know that they've done some of the re- reoccurring story arcs a lot better especially with what we saw with the triple killer uh-huh. earlier this season Yep. but uh, this, this was decent and you know one good thing that comes from it is as much as we did complain about it earlier this season because that it being extremely personal for Castle gives Martha and Alexis something to do because Martha really did have several scenes in this episode go be concerned about what Castle was going to find come out as missing two months can Alexis be the moral compass for Castle that her character is designed to be by telling her father and us fans Castle is not capable of doing something so horrible if he wanted his memory erased. Gabika, do you like how we got our first episode Got a long time where Martha and Alexis had something important to do? Could, did you like the important roles that they both played? mean, a big thing here with Alexis was, we got to see her be that moral compass for castle? Could we not see that in a couple of years, I feel like. Yeah, that has really been a major
1: disappointment of this season and maybe the last two seasons that Alexis particularly, but Martha and Alexis, being so underutilized and almost forgotten most of this season. I was glad to see them more involved this week as we suggested they would be when this story returned turned and of course it made sense since this was such a personal story for castle like you mentioned i miss having alexis on episodes and wish they had somehow found a way to incorporate her stories into the mysteries more often or tied the story to the family more so that we could get things like the one time we saw her and beckett have a moment earlier this season and other examples throughout this series anyway this week was better and based on the previews i've seen for next week we will finally get yes. that father-daughter team up we were hoping for as the air marshal is murdered on their flight to london and only Alexis and Castle can solve it so that should be fun it definitely could be fun and I think it should be
0: okay, I think we're going to see a lot more kind of Alexis I mean they had that great team up episode was it last season? yeah last season where
1: her professor got her started yep. on a Innocence Project case yeah yep, exactly yes.
0: so that was a great team up but I think this next vlog is going to be more interesting and I think there might be she might get involved in a little bit more action or danger somewhat because I felt like the scene that they had in this episode where she said dad you know I'm kind of an adult now you can talk to me about those things mm-hmm. I feel like that and open the audience it's up to maybe her being involved with a little more serious stuff.
1: Right. I think they're accelerating her college experience. Like, we don't know exactly whether she's a junior, whether she's a senior, right. whether she's actually a sophomore like she should be. You know, I think they might be accelerating that a little bit and moving us forward. So, I mean, we did have a two-month jump where he was missing and yeah. so we'll see. I mean,
0: it's all... That's, that's okay because the character's up to do, I think.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think it'll be a good thing and I, I'm, I'm okay with that and I think if they do an eighth season, which is still up in the air, Yes, I do think that they need to bring Alexis into the fold more, but if Stana... Well, I does... to that Beckett
0: Castle, I mean, Beckett and Alexis team up episode we talked about, too.
1: Yeah, you know, but what I was going to say is if Stana does not sign, this needs to be the series finale at the end. Well, yeah. It cannot, this show cannot survive without Beckett. I mean, it could, but it would be awful.
0: <laughs> yeah, people would be upset. Yeah. Because I mean, this show is designed for their relationship. I feel like a lot of these detective shows, especially the ones where it's a male and female lead, it's kind of like they started. Together, I feel like oh for sure. I mean I know the credits aren't done that way. got Castle they are on bones where it's it's David Murray as an Elliot oh, they there the title mm-hmm. character. I mean I think they both get top billing, but because uh, feel like it's that way with Castle as well. Oh
1: absolutely. There there is no show without Stonicotic.
0: Right, and, and, and they know that, and I think I think Nathan is not going to be upset if she wants to move away. I know it's a story concern that she's having, but she doesn't want it to get crappy, which is why she's holding out. At least that's what I've heard from interviews of people talking to people. So well that's
1: absolutely what she said in November when she said that if. It's not a financial thing for me. I, you know, it's all about the art. And if it, we're telling good stories and there's still room to grow the character and there's still places to go and things to explore, then I'm all in. But if I feel like it's not doing that or if, if you know, if I feel like the quality is going down, then it's a good time to get
0: out while on top. Okay, and I really thought this was going to come from Nathan I really did, I was really surprised to hear him sign I thought he would be kind of with her on this And again, they may be I mean, on the same page I don't think that they're at odds with each other or anything But I was very surprised that he was so quick to sign on Yeah, I was surprised
1: that it wasn't both of them signing together Or not yeah. signing But I mean, I'm sure there was, you know, there were reasons Reasons that each of them had And they must have met whatever Nathan needed And you know, they probably talked about future storylines And things like that But I, I really don't want to see this show where it's just just Nathan, and not Nathan and Stana.
0: Well, that would be stupid. I mean, that would throw years of problems out the, win- the window. Absolutely agree. <laughs> and maybe it would get us to not want to watch it. I can't believe I'm saying that about Nathan Phillips. Anything, but yeah, yeah. good as possible. Um, as for the uh, explanation Sir Castle was during the two months he went to sing, I still think having his memory erased is a concept that's maybe a little too far-fetched, but at least I now see it as a small bump in the road for an otherwise great show. What is going to lead to its destruction? Because Castle, ditching his wedding, could save thousands the alliance is, going mean, something he would do since we've seen him risk quite a bit to stop terrorist attacks in the past in the previous episode And even though we now have an explanation, I really don't think it's over yet because I feel like all the CIA connections to this plotline has something to do with Castle's father because it's just too coincidental. because I thought that Castle's old friend who defected from Al Qaeda was going to say Castle's father was his CIA handler that was killed because that was the reason why he tracked down Castle, kind of leaving the final arc of this series because I really don't think it's going to pass season eight of Castle trying to figure out the mystery of what happened to his father because did you buy into the concept that Castle did she already to save thousands of lives Because okay, based on this information could it be possible for the storyline to connect to his dad even if you thought it wasn't likely when we had last talked about the Amnesia plotline I okay, just think we need one more episode with the dad yes, to grab that up and finalize that storyline before the show comes to what
1: yeah you know Dan the fact that this was indeed a CIA plotline and it did not incorporate his father does not seem to make much sense and I kept waiting for that second shoe to drop in this episode and it be revealed his father was somehow involved I like your theory that it was his father who was the contact that was killed, because that was the exact same theory I had while watching this episode, and I kept waiting for them to figure that out and launch the next major story arc that will take us to the huge season, maybe series finale that goes back to Rick's hidden secret that was his safe word slash proof he told those people to erase his memories, which also was why he became a mystery writer, he mentioned when Becca asked him about it. Also, something I think ties back to his father as well, so I think it was all set up to be really good. So I suspect this is not over And maybe he right. will find out that it was his father who was killed. And we will still get that in the series finale or season finale, which I think would be a pretty cool series finale.
0: Right. And it's a reveal that feels season finale, series finale-esque. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or season finale-esque. For sure. where it goes. I'm not counting it out yet. Well, regardless of if this is the series finale
1: or the season finale, they did mention that this will give us a, a mystery to go forward. So whether it's something we think about after the show or if it's something that propels us into into a season eight. I think they're setting everything up because they didn't know whether we were going to have a uh, season right. eight. So, But it's not going to be a cliffhanger where you're frustrated or angry with the series that they left it on that note. I think it's going to be something where it's interesting and fun to look at if it is the series finale. And it's something that pr- could propel us into a se- season eight if it is a season finale.
0: Right. Or they could just leave it alone because I think we've got enough answers that we could be okay with that.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm much more excited about the fallout of this episode than I was going into it. And that is evidence of just how well this episode repaired the damage the premiere had done. So I think we've said it a couple times, but this was so much better than what we were expecting and what we got in those first two episodes about the
0: amnesia plot. Go, oh, I agree. I definitely agree with you on that. I'd Go for that. Yeah. I mean, I was more happy with the explanation. You oh, for sure. didn't anything out of character. Because yep. that's what we were scared of with the amnesia plot line. Yep. Because you remember, they've mentioned on the show that Castle has this dark side. We even kind of saw that in the Triple Killer episode. We don't really like that. Yeah. So I was really scared it was going to go heavy that way. Because it did it. And that, that was good. I mean, these writers or whatever realized maybe they made a mistake or whatever or felt like Cookins is not castle, they would turn it around to fix the thing. So can I give them credit for that? Again, castle is very good about this where they make a misstep and they, they fix it. Yeah. Okay, and you gotta give the show credit for that. And looking back on that you gotta remember about that because this show really the amnesia thing was probably the worst thing they did and it's it's not that bad right now after after this episode. So great job to them. Now we're gonna move on to the uh, show that uh, made it very complicated to fix themselves. Okay, and I don't even know if they will ever fix themselves. If they get close, they show shades of doing cool things and the things they could get excited and they shy away from them so let's talk about an episode that kind of did that some more with our discussion on Supernatural Go the episode The Werther Project
1: To help Rowena translate the Book of the Dam, Sam looks for a codex. However, the codex is sealed in a magical Werther box created by Cuthbert
0: Sinclair and kills anyone who tries to open it. With Rowena's part to play in this episode set aside, I like the premise of this episode as it explored the history of the Medal of Letters, which is something that I like because, well, it contains a wealth of knowledge that this show hasn't even bothered to touch upon. Because they could make it really great if they went through with some of our theories we had about Sam indeed restarting the Medal of Letters with the various guest star hunters who have appeared on the show. Also, I was glad to see the writers bring back Bert Sinclair who was the Man of Letters that went to the dark side because he's another character that I thought had great potential to be a reoccurring villain wasted by being killed off in well only one episode so we're stuck with a uh, terrible character like Rowena Steve Sinclair back kind of gave me hope that he could be brought back to really cause some trouble if the Winchesters really did try to restart the Man of Letters because the show has been known to do that in the past with characters like Lucifer however this is probably just wishful thinking because Supernatural seldomly ever does what I want because of this connection back to the Man of Letters history gets you invested this episode. Could it see a character like Luthbert Sinclair Claire Guitard make you hopeful for a next season story arc? Primarily focusing on the Men of Letters mythology.
1: Yeah, ever since the first Men of Letters episode a few seasons back, I have been super excited every time we can get any reference back to the original Men of Letters or any time it seems like Sam and Dean are restarting the organization. This episode gave me a great feeling when Sam referred to Dean and himself as Men of Letters, like they've already revived the Order and consider themselves the first new members. That has me hopeful for our own theories about next season and the idea that Sam and Dean may reestablish the Men of Letters with Sam as the head of the Order and Dean the head of the Hunter training program and officially unite the Hunters and the Men of Letters, much like Bobby unofficially did by being the home base for most Hunters. Also, the return of Cuthbert Sinclair was a double-edged sword for me. I loved seeing his character again, but it made me angry that they wasted such a great possible villain in a single-shot episode last season. But it got me thinking. They mentioned that there were other Men of Letters that had gone bad, and if Sam and Dean are going to restart the Men of Letters... As an organization, they will need to seek out and find out if there are any other legacies like themselves, and in the process may run into some legacies of the ones that went dark. Or even, some of them may have become powerful warlocks and are essentially immortal like Rowena and could be big bad options for next season as well. Just a cool theory and something I was thinking about during this episode.
0: And why aren't we writing this show? (laughs) Seriously, I mean, like we came up with this two years ago. Oh yeah. And we're like, this is brilliant, they should do this. Because they won't do it. I don't know why. I don't understand. It's like right in front of their face. because they, they cannot get this. Well, they might uh,
1: just be doing a real slow burn on it.
0: Why? Because CW said, we're going to have you out for 15 seasons? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like this is the way the show should go. I think this would get people excited. I think people like hearing about the the history of the Winchester family and what that is, especially when it's done right and like the disaster they did with the mom's side of the family. But uh, yeah, I, I don't get why they can't see this through because like going up against like evil men of letters or ones that fell astray, that's kind of interesting. Right. And I think. Supply the planet they could go for a while. Because you have different backstories, you have different things. Suppose we've seen people that are out there because that have been wronged by the Metal letters or kind of cut out to dry like the psychic guy who we thought was a very good character and had potential to, to tell stories. Like that kind of stuff. That's what I want to see. That's how it is. And, and again, I still want this, this, this possibility that the Metal letters are still around in Europe in different countries. I mean, I, I feel like you could get two or three seasons out of that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we could go there and it stays that way and they don't do something crazy like like possibly kill off Dean, which I'm going to get into in a second. Yeah, this is the way to go. Can you've got got enough characters to rebuild it, too, that are running around out there. I mean, you have Charlie and you've got, uh, who else you have? You have the, the girl that, that had the, the team of hunters that were living in that house. right? Um, you could make Cass's, you know, daughter or whatever she is be a hunter. I mean, there's, there's a couple other people running around, is it there?
1: Oh, yeah, and there's plenty of regular hunters out there that they've all worked with, I think. Yeah, because they've called a couple of
0: people on the phone that we haven't seen.
1: Yeah, and other people have checked in with them, and it's just a throwaway, sort of, one-sided scene with Sam or with Dean on the phone, but they're checking in with other hunters, finding out what's going on, trying to get some information on lore or things like that for cases they've worked on, and they just don't reference who it is or mention who it is. It's just the idea that there are other hunters out there, and a lot of them are connected.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the alarm predicting that Codex could sign the Werther box. Wertherbox, I thought that was a very clever way to bring back the character of Buddy in a way that Scream classic horror movie, because ultimately he is the only friend of Deeds who, I feel like, could tell it like it is, and understand the monster that Dean is turning into since he essentially is one with being turned into a vampire. Although as great as the Betty seeds were with giving the direction, what to do about the hallucination? Sam was he kind of felt short as he should have seen someone that could haunt him like Ruby, Lucifer, or the love interest he left behind back in season eight. Instead of a villain he barely knows like Rowena. Nico, with the part Sam played in this episode, could have been better if he was haunted by someone who represented the mistakes he made in the past to tell him he was going down the same path again. Can was Dean's encounter with the hallucination of Betty and Indication that he may sacrifice himself to stop whatever chaos could be caused by Sam trying to cure him of the mark.
1: No, Dan, that was the way the curse first attempted to trick Sam and guilt him into committing suicide. When it realized that he was too strong and too self assured to fall for that or to be manipulated emotionally to kill himself, it took another tact by making him think he'd been saved by Rowena and put him on a path that would force him to kill himself in an attempt to open the box. Okay. The curse was so or... kind of
0: like a double dream in Inception. Yeah, That's exactly. Okay.
1: Exactly. The curse or spirit guarding the box would peer into each person and find a way to convince them to kill themselves. Like the old lady seeing her dead family that all killed themselves when she let the spirit out years ago and preying on her guilt. To Dean thinking he was back in purgatory and seeing Benny. To Sam thinking he was saving his brother. This is how these this curse worked. These were all ways the curse attempted to get the person to kill themselves. It was actually a brilliant move, I thought. Guilt was not going to work on Sam, but making him think he was saving Dean by killing himself? That would have worked.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. That was a good call. You know, I, I think Would have been fun to see maybe some of those characters from the past, but again, you're probably right, we're past Sam being on a guilt trip, Uh and they really need to make strides to show this situation is different than the apocalypse because we've talked about how it's kind of walking that line of feeling like the end of season four. So I'm glad they're showing differences. Again, I mean, I was glad we saw that again that there was a difference between what Sam's doing now and the blunder he made at the end of season four to call the apocalypse by choosing to chain Rowena up until she came through for him because it means, I think, showing that he's not this gullible kid who's going to fall for the bad guys anymore. But with that being said we know from experience that trying to cure Dean he's probably going to blow up in Sam's face. Okay, could possibly a straight chain from his brother this next time around God okay, with Sam telling Rowena he's going to kill Crowley Got okay, the next episode being, being titled Angel Heart which makes me think Sam may have to kill Cass because an Angel Heart gives needed to cure Dean of the mark. So in other words I'm still thinking Cade's prophecy about Crowley and Cass being killed was referring to Sam doing the dirty deed in order to cur- cure his brother. Nico are you also beginning to feel this way? Okay, after watching this episode Gork could the Angel Heart easily belong to someone like Metatron? As well.
1: Dan, I do still think that Cass and Crowley are going to die this season, but I don't think Sam is going to need an angel's heart to kill Crowley. Rather,
0: why, or to, to cure Dean. Or, or
1: well, yeah, I, I understand that, but I, I think next week's episode is going to more deal with how far Cass is willing to go to save Dean, and whether that means destroying himself or his angelic nature to save a friend. I think it's more of a metaphorical angel's heart in next week's title, rather than literal with needing an angel's heart to save Dean. I think it's, uh, you know, it's about what an angel is willing to do to save a human and that that sort of is where the angel's heart comes from that's just my thought anyway but even so I do still think that Dean may kill Cass and Crowley in the process of going bad or succumbing to the mark that's what we've been saying we think is going to happen somehow in the process it's going to happen it could also be that Sam kills Crowley but in the process Cass is killed as well and in a sense the mark killed both Crowley and Cass in that case as well just my thoughts as we go into the final four episodes I'm not sure where it's going which it's going to be or anything like that these are just some of the thoughts I've been having.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's that's all good points. Again, I mean, this show makes me think the ridiculous is going to happen, mm-hmm. so my brain automatically goes there now. Again, some of these series I have I don't like, but it's like where they have to go to keep going. Got times. I'm glad you could play Devil's Advocate here, Nico go ahead Maybe there's an easier way out. Guess, that's a very good thing. Yeah, for sure. But again, like I would be sad to see Crowley go because I do think he's a good part of the show. I think he could be good once they get really there again. Again, I like cats as well, but I think Misha Collins gonna, has a bunch of projects he's working on. But I, I mean, those two guys are, are very very Busy. Yeah. I mean, they're going to be sought after even if they're off Supernatural. So oh, sure. um, they could be done. And again, and, and I'm, yeah, I'm not going to hold it against them either. Yeah, there's still that possibility. Justin Ackles could be out too. Yeah.
1: And uh, if,
0: if all of that happens, then Nico will be out as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan will be out as well too. Cross the Airways may be out on that. Yeah, I think so. Because there's a lot more other exciting things to cover out there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Got a lot more exciting horror shows. Yes. Yep. Um, again, Sleepy Hollow is one that comes to mind, but that even could get scary next season, which we've talked about that as well. Right. Again, that's, yeah, but, uh, Walking Dead may be coming soon so you can be excited about that that's a good horror show we'll see how that goes but anyway we're going to talk about another fan-following cult-favorite show right now because Nico's dad uh, which is very nice of him is going to join Nico for them to talk about Orphan Black with the episode Transistory Sacrifices of Crisis Caster pursues the Lita clones for original tissue samples. Meanwhile, Helena, who is pregnant and in prison, is examined by a mysterious villain.
1: Alright, so while the Project Leda clones seem to have a genetic defect that causes cancers and premature death, the Caster clones seem to have a genetic defect that makes them go crazy, like PTSD on steroids. Will this give the two clone factions a similar goal and bring them together as uneasy allies, or is Sarah too pissed at them stealing Helena to see beyond that? Also, I love that they call Seth going crazy glitching. That's a little more than a
2: glitch. Boy, that's more than glitching. I can't believe that they just call it that. this is, If you look at the pain that this guy's in, writhing on the floor, it's not just a glitch.
1: I love the idea that both clones' original cell lines are missing, and no one knows if that is just super classified BS from the dyad group or if they are all actually lost. One would have to assume that the dyad has lost at least the lead clones' cell line, and that is why they are so desperate for Sarah's ovary and Kira's stem cells. The idea that both clones' cell lines have inherent defects due to the genetic manipulations they performed on the original cell lines going wrong is surprising. Sarah, Kira, and Helena are probably the only ones immune because they are made of the good stuff as Seth says. Since both clones, the boys and girls have these inherent defects that probably have to do with genetic changes they made to the cell lines to make them all sterile and other enhancements, one could foresee the two sides coming together for a common purpose to find and cure both side's defects. That is of course if Sarah doesn't screw it all up looking for Helena. Plus, do we really see the sisterhood working with the crazy brothers and could either side ever really trust the others? Later in the episode, Paul shows up to administer a cognitive test on both clones, Seth and Rudy, which Seth fails spectacularly, and Rudy gets a little mouthy with Paul. Which, with how things ended up going, he'll probably end up regretting later on. Paul gave Rudy and Seth their extraction orders, which Rudy totally ignores because he points out that they don't have the original sample yet. Still, they are told to report to base, to which Rudy replies, "Is that coming from Mother or you?" So my question for you is: I'm assuming Mother is that Dr. Virginia Cody woman, and so what's her deal? You
2: got any theories? Yeah, I think Dr. Cody is. More- mother, and I think Dr. Cody might just be another one of the original science research teams entrusted with overseeing the caster branch. I wouldn't be surprised if we find another branch of the family tree to come out out of the woodwork.
1: I thought that cognitive test they did with the soldiers was pretty interesting. It seemed like almost a a polygraph and psych exam all wrapped into a cognitive response time exam. Of the two before this episode, I would have never guessed Seth was the messed up clone. Rudy seemed so much more crazy and unhinged last week, and mustachioed Seth seemed more level-headed and inefficient. I'm really not sure what to make of this Dr. Virginia Cody character either. What is her connection to the original Dyad program, or is is there any? Did she take over the Caster Clones when the Dyad had its issues with the Duncans leaving and Dr. Ethan Duncan going on the run to prevent the Dyad from making any more Project Lita clones, and the Caster Military Clone Project? That's what I thought, that she was somehow involved with the original project, maybe as an associate of the Duncans, or maybe as a graduate assistant or lab assistant that later took over because she was the only one who knew the science. I think we're both on the same page there. I do hope we dive into her character more as we go forward this season and almost invariably that's where it's gonna go also this week's amazing feat of cinematography was accomplished in that creepy sex scene from the beginning of the episode where all of a sudden a woman was being caressed by four arms and two caster clones not nearly as amazing as last week's scene with helena and her shower but just this week's nod to remind us that they can do just about anything but my question stemming from this story arc has to do with why the caster clones are abducting lita clones helena and that clone from last week that escaped and why they need dna from the woman they had sex with this week. What are they doing?
2: Yeah, I think this DNA sampling was just a way to keep her information on file so if she got pregnant and and maybe they would be able to come back and find her. And then possibly they might have to steal the baby as a potential way to get new source code from the uh, caster clones.
1: Yeah, that was my first thought as well, was that they were collecting DNA and all her information in case she got pregnant from this encounter and so they could have someone surveil her and if she conceived then either steal the baby or abduct her and the baby like they did with Helena. I'm not so sure about that anymore with Rudy Looking for the original sample with the Lita clones. That just kind of confused it all for me. But maybe that was an intentional misdirect. It makes me think they took Helena to experiment on her until they realized she was pregnant, and now they want to know why she's not sterile like all the other Leda clones except Sarah. We know that that this is because they are identical twins in addition to being clones, and they are special because Ruby said Sarah was made of quote the good stuff." I think that wasn't just a throw off comment. I think that is going to play into what makes Sarah and Helena different from all the other clones. I'm not sure what what that means though and it's going to be an interesting discovery throughout this season. These are just some of the theories and unanswered questions that have me excited about this season. This series is so good at the conspiracy, but has enough action, humor, and drama to keep the story moving from week to week. This is easily one of my top five TV shows on television, and probably number two behind only Game of Thrones. So the final thing I want to talk about is, let's talk about Team Hendrix. Oh, Allison, you're nothing if not resourceful, aren't you? After declaring herself a candidate for a tiny, insignificant local politics position, Mrs. Hendrix has decided to utilize her pre- sober knowledge, and Ramon to secure herself a bit of backing. That's right, Alison Hendricks, soccer mom, political player, drug dealer. Is there nothing this woman can't do? It's super risky and almost assuredly going to backfire, but for now, it's pretty ingenious, right? So, Dad, what do you think of this week's Team Hendricks story arc, and how long do you think they can keep up being drug dealers?
2: Yeah, I don't know how Alison comes up with this stuff, and she's just gotta be a great drug dealer. She was so good in the negotiation for the business, and and made Donnie look like a, a a bumbling idiot. She always makes Donnie look like the dim bulb in her group. I love the quote when they were arguing on the soccer field. What happens when we sell the house? Do we feature the body in the garage? Finally, this is going to work fantastically for Team Hendricks until it doesn't.
1: Exactly. This has all the potential to be hilarious seeing Donnie and Allison attempt to be drug dealers, but we know it is all going to come crashing down around them. Or is it? They seem to get through the murder of Dr. Leakey last season and the framing slash discrediting of Vic as well. So they can probably do anything and come out unscathed. We just don't know. It's got to come crashing down around them, but then again, they seem to be made of Teflon. Regardless, it'll be great humor either way. That's about all the time we got for this week. We'll be back next week to watch the third episode of Orphan Black. All right. Thanks, Dad, for joining me once again for this
0: week's discussion
1: on Orphan Black. Now it's time to jump back into the sitcom sections.
0: Yes, it's going to get funny around here because we talk about a community episode that across the airways has no intention of trying to advertise on the way, but we'll probably end up doing it anyway with our discussion on the episode. safety. Fin- features.
1: A former boyfriend lures Britta into joining Honda's guerrilla marketing campaign. Jeff looks to get Elroy to like him.
0: My favorite comedic moment from this week's community it would have to be Chang showing off his mad PowerPoint presenting skills, complete with a dollar bill and a cracked egg magic trick, which fell miserably because he forgot which egg he put the dollar bill in. He really just didn't know how the trick worked altogether. Also, I thought community making fun of guerrilla advertising was a one-and-done thing with the Subway character. I don't I can say his name because they couldn't live the episode, but uh, it was creative how they brought him back with a new persona of Rick, a guy who owns a Honda that strangely enough looked like the guy in the Honda commercial that Yahoo shows during episodes of Community. So that was pretty funny stuff. I don't know if you caught that as well Nico. But what I thought really made the return of Britta's ex work was the Dean becoming what I like to call the Honda hoarder. Get Millie Zane. gets his boss. Especially when he tried to be cool with a Batman disappearing exit. But Britta spotted him hiding underneath a table. At the same time I still can't get enough of Keith David and Elroy. Which really goes for the scene where he and Britta couldn't figure out what to call a drawbridge. Great stuff. Very funny. Cause so Nico now that they got you up there on the ladder i'm going to need something reached by you giving us your favorite comedic moments from this week's community
1: dan you pretty much nailed the best parts of this episode i too loved chang's powerpoint presentation which just kept getting better and better as it went on and the appearance of billy zane as the honda boss and his failed batman disappearance tricks also elroy insulting jeff by calling him a weird hair gelled cpr dummy that was (laughs) great frankie trying to comfort the dean while calling him stupid over and (laughs) over was a highlight for a character i've not been a huge fan of as was the payoff of her playing steel drums in the band at the concert. Speaking yeah. of Frankie, I liked her bringing up everyone's ongoing nostalgic adoration of Troy, which was obviously a meta moment within this episode, but it actually made it seem like it would be a bigger part of this episode, rather than just a self-contained conversation that later paid off with her playing the drums. I don't know, I thought they were going to come back to it or or discuss it a little bit more, and, it, and they didn't. Don't get me don't,
0: wrong. Well, Donald Glover is going to pop up at some point.
1: He's got to, you know. I, I think he will. Don't get me wrong, Community, like Chuck, has used product placement to perfection by making it part of the show while also poking fun at it at the same time. Both of these great shows use Subway and this week it was Honda's turn. I was actually glad to see Honda go along with this plot that included sex in the back of one of their cars and a not-so-glowing portrayal of Rick as it turned out Brita wasn't allowed to criticize Avatar or anything popular. Also, compared to the Subway episode entitled Digital Exploration of Interior Design, in this episode it was at times more difficult not to just feel like, well, we were being sold a Honda here. But still, there was some funny moments along the way is Rick and Britta became a highly influential couple and I give Honda credit for going along with this storyline because it was pretty much poking fun at them at the expense of them a lot of the time but also the entire episode was about Honda so yes. it was good good publicity or it was publicity anyway
0: you know okay you get Billy Zane to advertise Honda you go with it yeah you know hey. yeah. So Billy Zane he just cracks me up ever since he popped up in Zoolander randomly in that movie yeah he just cracks me off.
1: well he's gonna be part of Zoolander too
0: yes well he has it was just announced
1: yeah yeah,
0: so good yeah, stuff. walk off. It's walk off. Yeah. yeah that, that's, and I love how in that movie they just call him by his soul name. I have to call him Billy Zane. I can't just call him by his first name. Oh, yeah. That movie, yeah. Yeah. And also, there was a subway commercial during uh, community as well when I was watching this on Yahoo Street. So they're still around supporting them as well, which is pretty funny. So good stuff. You know, way to cover that plotline and uh, kind of bring something back that I thought was kind of dumb. So, yeah. Good job for community, guys. You know, for a sixth season and being online and everything, they're still running pretty strong. So okay, well, with that, we'll move on to another show that, you know, surprisingly is having a, a pretty funny season set because that's. Spider family with the episode, knock them down.
1: Cam asks Jay to sub in on his bowling team for the finals, but doesn't make it clear that it's an all-gay league, which puts Jay in a precarious situation. Meanwhile, Phil and Claire are surprised by how much fun they have at dinner with their neighbors Ronnie and Amber. And Gloria and Mitch set out to prove they are still young and fun by agreeing
0: to a night of clubbing with Haley. Or boredom if you want to go with that. We'll get back to that in a minute. My favorite comedic moment for this week's Spider Family was all the great one-liners Jay had complaining to Cam about pretending to be gay so he could bowl in his all-gay bowling league. and how he blew it at the end to make Oliver Platt's guest character feel better also Phil inadvertently destroying the nude statue that was creating a disturbance in the neighborhood with Ronnie where the hijinks kind of wanted to see since Steve's uh, started appearing on the show and I'm glad the writers finally got it right this time go and I can't get my thoughts on this episode without giving an honorable mention to Luke for making me laugh with a drawing of his penis good stuff and uh, made up for me being a little sad we didn't get a whole lot of Luke this week so great job throwing bit in Byron family Biko what were your favorite comedic moments for this episode
1: yeah absolutely my favorite comedic moment of the week was Luke's self-port of his penis. Probably the best line of the entire <laughs> season from Luke, and I loved it. Jay pretending to be gay was humorous as well as were the hijinks with Steve Zahn's Ronnie and Phil, but nothing topped Luke's final line. Also, the Mitchell and Gloria arc felt about as tired as they were by 10 p.m. Really weak sauce there. Yes, Lu- I agree. Luke was
0: great. Mitchell and Gloria, not so much. Luke came in to save the episode of the 11th hour. Is basically what happened. Yep, exactly. Yep, the kicker rock, you know? because you just make them split off? Oh, yeah. Luke goes to college. That that should be it. That, that would be fun. I would enjoy it. Yeah. Again, you you got to get. Some good supporting characters though. That would be the trick. And anyway, we're going to move on to the Big Bang Theory, which, you know, keeps running strong on reminding us that it's a show making fun of geek culture Good staying away from these lameo domestic disputes that started off this season. Um, I feel like they started out kind of not remembering where they were and good thing they're going back to it with this episode. So I got a really good episode that I did a nice blend between comedy and some of the struggles that geeks face and stuff like that when they were in high school. So let's talk about the episode The Graduation Transmission. All
2: started with the Big Bang. Hey!
1: Leonard's high school alma mater asks him to make a graduation speech, but plans may be scuttled when his flight is canceled. Meanwhile, Roger's allowance is canceled by his father.
0: This is a very fun episode of The Big Bang Theory, made possible by my favorite comedic moments, which were everything that had to do with the drone helicopter, including Sheldon and Howard trying to get the helicopter working, Raj turning his parents against each other to get everyone helicopters, the guy laughing at Bernadette's suggestion to call tech support, going to end up calling it anyway, got the helicopter going out of control, which forced Sheldon to call the police with a warning the machines are taking over. Also, I got a good laugh out of Leonard dressed, because yeah, the sexy graduate, especially the little leg kick he gave Penny. Very funny stuff, probably. One of the funniest moments we've seen with Leonard in a while. Okay, with that, initiate the sequence. Come Nico sharing his favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory. Dan, my favorite comedic moment
1: from this week's episode was probably also all the stuff that was related to the struggle to get the drone working. I've dealt with electronics that seemed almost as ridiculous as flipping the switch at least 10 times. I think we and, all have. And turning it horizontally, then vertically, until the lights changed to green. Also, the Raj stuff was somewhat funny as well. If, if anything, he almost came across like a less sadistic version of South Park's <laughs> Eric Cartman with all that, mommy. <laughs> and, you know, it was just very Cartman-esque. It seemed like Leonard and Penny were due for a road trip to New Jersey, which would have been a nice change of scenery. It allowed for a cameo appearance for Leonard's mother, Beverly, so much the better. We know that it is actually coming either next week or the one after that, Next week, when both Sheldon and Leonard's moms come to visit. So I'm not disappointed we did not get it here. It's just there was so much potential. There. there was also definitely some wasted potential in terms of allowing Leonard to interact with old classmates and teachers if he had gone to the actual ceremony. But Leonard's actual speech made for a pretty nice scene, despite my disappointment. His appeal to all the nerds, outcasts, and oddballs really spoke to his journey over the course of this entire show. High school sucks for a great many people, but with a little time, a little luck, and some expanded horizons, oftentimes things do get better. So, it was
0: interesting to see that. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, Big Bay Theory is very good with the set about As well, guys with the comedy, and I thought this was another episode that did very well again. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the thought of Leonard going back and having that happen in an appearance by his mother crossed their minds, but I think the two mothers meeting probably ended up being a better idea, that's why they went with that. I think you're probably right. Yeah, but again, I think the thought was there. Because yes, I would have liked to see a welcome back Connor experience with Leonard, that would be fun. Because maybe that's something that they should, you know, keep in the tank for a future season or something like that. You know, do a high school reunion episode or something. That would be cool. Yep, that's just something to keep in mind. I'm sure they might have written that down somewhere as a note going to, to do it next year because i think we only got one more episode left right i'm not entirely sure yeah we're close 20. these either they have 23 or 24 episodes so we're good there
1: yeah i think it's 24 it's 24 so we have two more
0: we got two more good deal all right all right so with that i think we're going to move into closing of this episode on a uh, week of television that was again slim Pickens again come i think we're going to build back up our schedule next week with some more exciting stuff to talk about and, uh nico's dad i think returning as well so come let's get into the closing and nico's gonna talk everybody what's going down next week
1: yeah, next week's episode we'll have a News with Nico section with all the TV and entertainment news that has come out in the next week, and we'll continue our coverage of the spring TV season as we review an episode of Castle, Person of Interest, Supernatural, and Orphan Black, along with our sitcom sections, including all of the ones we cover right now, Community, New Girl, Modern Family, and Big Bang Theory. So join us next week for all of that. Also remember that our entire back catalog is available if you're just getting caught up on any of the shows we cover, go back and catch Dan and my thoughts on the episodes. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com. Now roll that. That pre-recorded closing
0: get at our across the airwaves website you can check out our other podcast shows including the dc nation podcast located at its own website dcnation.acrostheairwaves.com get in the itunes store which reviews the tv shows gotham the flash garrow and constantine Get if you want reviews on marvel comics related tv shows such as agents of shield gage and carter get the netflix shows premiering in april check out the podcast hosted by gandima mokht nikki amy and myself known as helicarrier the shield podcast located at HelicarrierPodcast.com. get in the itunes store. In addition to these programs, check out Thronescast. Our podcast hosted by Nico, Nikki, and myself, dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website Airways.com, or on iTunes. Can you can send us your thoughts on each Game of Thrones episode by emailing us at thronescast at gmail.com, tweeting us at thronescast that's at thronescast, leaving us a voicemail at 773- 809-3363 at 773-809-3363 or by posting on our Facebook Page located at Facebook.com/slash Thronescast. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation Podcast, Thronescast, A Game of Thrones Podcast, Get a Helicarrier, The Shield Podcast, Got the Mix Internet Radio Station, code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the podcast box app. If you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps for the Amazon marketplace. got the Windows Marketplace cause a regular Windows phone app? As for how you can contact us to give your own insight on the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can prove your po- podcast listening experience, or just to say you like what we're doing, email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at acrossairwaves. The airwaves. Again, there's no the on there. It's just acrossairwaves. Join our circle on Google+. Go leave us a voicemail at 773-809-3363. Again, that 773-809-3363. And I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies, and okay, television events, such as Avengers Age of Ultron, Batman vs. Superman, got okay, Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Cons and will be a great source to find videos coming out of Comic-Con 2015 this summer. All right. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Bill Riceck, Nikki Amy, Andy Wabach, Luke Cam, and Michael J. Buddy, i Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reistek. good until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you guys. Have a great week. And thanks for joining us down this backwards traveler trip down memory lane. See you guys. Hey, did you know? Return to our regularly scheduled program.